0: This episode is dedicated to two friends of Pratchat collected too soon. No one is dead while their name is still spoken. GNU, DJ Ian Bell. GNU, Cal Wilson.
1: You do have to dress up a bit, no, no matter what, it, like, you can't just go in tracky-dacks mm. and t-shirt and be like, mm. uh, I'm evil Ben McKenzie.
2: I'm Elizabeth Flux. And I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club
0: podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books or short stories with a special
2: guest. This month we're reading Turntables of the Night or Terry Pratchett's Discworld.
0: <coughs> and <laughs> I, just, I can't believe I did say that kind. And our guest <laughs> is comedian and superstar DJ Andrew McClelland. Welcome, Andy. Hello, thank
1: you. A pleasure to be here. ba <laughs> boo That is the um introductory call of the DJ of course at any yes. time.
2: Yes indeed. I, I did read that in a book one time. I didn't know how it was pronounced.
1: Ah, uh, thank you. It's difficult to spell. It is. As well. it is.
2: I'm surprised it doesn't
0: appear in this story, actually. But thank you so much for being our guest for this story. I couldn't think of a, a more perfect guest than you. You are a superstar DJ and a fabulous comedian. So, perfect combination of skills to discuss.
1: Oh, oh, you, uh, you flatter me too much. I am a niche comedian and, and a niche DJ, but I've done pretty good with my yes. niche. Thank the gods.
0: Well, I mean, I feel like if opening for Sure does not qualify you for the Monica Superstar, then I just don't know what does.
1: Oh, all right. Uh, um, Replacing Sure and having her open for
2: me. I was like, who's Monica Superstar? But then I understood. She sounds great. (laughs) I'd go see her.
0: That'd be great.
2: Oh, actually, I supported her once. Um, yeah. Of course Great. you did. Also, fun fact about Andy's comedy and music coming together, every time I hear the Venger Boys, I think of you. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah.
1: I was hoping you were going to say uh, Gilbert and Sullivan, but Venga Boys will do. Because yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so th- there's not that many occasions now when you're wandering down the street and hear uh, the very model of a modern major general just floating out of a shop.
2: No, that's... We could change Not that. one
1: that's trying to attract... Anyone other than those buying canes and, and straw boaters. Uh, jabots. <laughs> yes. You know,
2: you're in a position of power to change that though. If you just like slip a little bit of that into each of your sets, people will start to be like, oh, yeah, that's like a thing that I'd like to listen to. And then it goes out into the world and spreads.
1: You're absolutely right. I really should think more of my own power to influence <laughs> society as a whole.
2: I just remember when, when
0: we were all sort of coming up together in comedy land you and me and uh, Lawrence and a couple of other people who were starting it. Well, I mean, you both had a bit of a head start on me, but we were all sort of, you know, in our early days together. And I remember there's this sort of rivalry, particularly between you and Lawrence and Courtney Hocking, for who could have the most obscure songs as people were coming in to their show in the, in their house music sort of playlist. <laughs>
1: Ben, it was not a rivalry, firstly. We keenly supported each other. And secondly, it wasn't about being obscure either. I would play music that I thought pumped, but wasn't too Uh, obvious. And that is one of the keys to DJing. You want to play stuff that surprises people, but also delights them. Not so obscure they haven't heard it before. Not so common that it's Dancing Queen again.
0: I feel like there is an elegant allegory there for the way that comedy works. And I'm sure I've mentioned this on a recent episode of the podcast, but there's that great description of how jokes work as being um, a surprise that makes sense. Like, you know, you set up this sort of premise or question, and then when you give the answer, it's surprising, but also you don't go, what? You go, oh, oh, I get it. Like, it it makes sense to you, even though you weren't expecting it. That's, yeah. And I feel like that's- you're describing the musical equivalent of that.
1: No, you're absolutely right. All these things are about walking that line between over familiarity. And what the heck is that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I feel like that also is a, is a great segue. It's talking about Terry Pratchett and this story, because we had a few people commenting on our post announcing this was the story for the next episode saying, I've never heard of this story. Um, uh, because it is, it is slightly obscure. It's not, it's not that obscure. Like people, it's been published three or four times in different collections, but it's not one of his most well-known ones. And of course it's not part of the disc world, despite, Liz, your genius pun. I can't believe I didn't think of that myself. Uh, It's that kind of joke, right? Again, a surprise, but it makes sense. Uh, But, Andy, you're you're a, a big Pratchett fan. We've talked about Pratchett a couple of times.
1: Heck, yeah. Well, I was a big Pratchett fan and remain one, but I read every bit of Pratchett I could get my hands on from about 12 to about 20 years old. Including, you know, Truckers and uh, Good Omens and all of Discworld that was released at that point. And then I sort of drifted away because there's so much Pratchett to get through and you do need to read other things. And I didn't go back until I read, um, oh, his ones about, oh, the quite science fictiony. There's an earth, there's a second earth underneath. There's like la- the long earth, the long mm. earth. Thank you so much. And I read a couple of those, um, but slowed down when I got to number three. I must say. But, yeah, um, I love, love Terry Pratchett. Always have done. And I know there's a treasure trove of additional Discworld books waiting for me when I have the time, perhaps in my dotage, once I lay down these weary headphones, <laughs> say adieu to the uh, grease paint and spotlights and focus on the man that is Andrew McClelland via the other man
2: that is Terry Pratchett. Or... <laughs> is that too you- long? That was too long.
0: No, that sounds... Delightful
2: hear me out you start mixing the audiobooks yeah. into wedding lists
1: yes good call with beats <laughs> with additional beats again that again that may come under the what the heck category but uh, Liz you don't know until you try yeah,
0: oh. yeah there's I mean look you, you can get the tones of uh, Peter Serafinowicz in there playing the voice of death as he does in all the new penguin audiobook versions and now I kind of I want to hear him read this story. <laughs> <laughs> or at least be the voice of death in this story, because death does appear, uh, as we will talk about. Um, had you read any of his short stories before?
1: Almost certainly, but I cannot recall. <laughs> <laughs> Again, we're talking about my teenage years, uh, which were um, 20 years ago. So, uh, no, probably, I'd like to say probably, if my library had them, the answer is yes.
0: Which which they might have. They might have done. Mm. I- um, a couple of the books that I collected because they had Terry Pratchett's name on the cover were some of these anthologies of comic fantasy or comic science fiction. Because, you know, once you get into Terry Pratchett, I think a lot of us are like, oh, this is great. Like, it's two of my favorite things mashed up together. Like, it's fantasy and it's funny. I want more of that. And it's actually very hard, in my experience, to find anyone else who's good at it. <laughs> like, there's a there's been a lot of it, but some most of it is not very good.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I used to read a bunch of, um, who did uh, Harry Harrison did oh, yes. the sci-fi side of it, and I quite like that too. But then that got me into Harry Turtledove and that whole territory of weird alternate history stuff, which I do still read. Oh, my gosh. I've just started Guns of the South again. He is, I mean, again, all these authors, they're no Terry Pratchett. That's for darn sure.
0: No. Um, that's probably as good a segue as we're going to get to get back on topic here and talk about this short story, which is... Turntables of the Night, uh, which was first published in a book called Hidden Turning's, edited by none other than Diana Wynne-Jones, frequently mentioned on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, And it was a collection of sort of YA short stories, although it wasn't called that at the time.
2: I was very excited to hear that Diana Wynne-Jones was involved with this, because as Ben has mentioned, I've talked about her a lot on this podcast, as have other guests, but I think I've mentioned her quite a few times. So, it was fascinating to me that they, like, knew each other at this point as well that like, cause it says that she was like, she wanted a story for it, which implies that she sort of like tapped him for it, not sort of, it was an open call. So that kind of connection mm. was very nice to see. Also, I quite enjoyed him saying short stories always seem to cost me blood and I envied the people who do them for fun, um, which I'm just like preempting the blurb that we're going to read out anyway. Um, but that's very real. And I appreciate hearing that because it does sometimes feel like you are writing things with your own blood because it is difficult. So thank you for that Mm -hmm. affirmation. Mm -hmm.
0: There is a story that Diana Wynne-Jones wrote for the same anthology called The Master. Have you read that one? Do you know that one, Liz?
2: No, I haven't read that one. I've only read her Christomancy and related, like, world-related ones. Unless it's part of that, I'm not great at remembering titles. but Mm, I don't think it is. Yeah, I haven't read a lot of her other short stories.
0: Yeah. And, they yeah, they did definitely know each other. There was a previous episode where we wondered if they'd met And I found a recording from probably around this time. I'll I'll find it and I'll link it in the episode notes, listener. But uh, there was a recording of the two of them on a panel for a um, a book festival or a sci-fi convention, and it was chaired by Neil Gaiman. I think it was still in Neil Gaiman's sort of early pre-fame days when he was turning up to chair things at fan events. Um, Back
1: when Neil Gaiman was famous for being a writer. Yeah. (laughs) As opposed to for being Neil Gaiman. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: But yeah, I think it was from the late 80s or possibly the early 90s. So it was a bit around the same time. And they were talking about stories and fantasy. So I'll, uh, I'll relink that and give you an idea of the context of their friendship at the time. Um, and look, Liz, I don't know that we really need to read out the notes for Turntables of the Night. They don't really say much. They're very short. Um, but I think the, the other thing that I, I do want to bring up is that, uh, he mentions that sometimes you just get an idea for a story title and you have to write it. Mm. So the title came to him first Um, and there's actually there's quite a long introduction to it in one of the other collections I've got so I've got this book The Flying Sorcerers which is from about 1996 which was the first place it was collected after it was initially published in 1989.
1: Great name for a book.
0: It is isn't it? Uh, The guy who edited it Peter Haining he edited a a bunch of other ones Um, the main other one that is well known to Pratchett fans is called The Wizards of Odd (laughs) which is all comic fantasy as well Uh, But this one, the first section, is called Hordes of the Things, Comic Fantasies. Uh, Hordes of the Things, also the name of a radio comedy spoof of Lord of the Rings. So there's there's a bit of history there. But anyway, he, he wrote a little intro to all of them, and he writes quite a long one talking about how great Terry Pratchett is and not saying too much else. But it's, yeah, it's good. But I know in this, you know, it was fairly cheaply produced. I'm sure this book, uh, and so when Death speaks in in this edition, he just speaks in all caps. There's no small caps like in a blink of the screen. But you know, the,
1: the- are you saying because it was cheaply produced, they couldn't uh, <laughs> afford the ink to have additional types of caps?
0: Yes, yes, that yeah, is what I'm very saying. Well. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if in the original it was all caps or small caps either. We'd have to look that up. If you know, a listener. I don't have a copy of Hidden turnings, but I know at least one of our listeners does, so if you you know let us know that'd be an interesting thing to know.
2: If you do, it'll be a real feather in your caps. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. The other thing about this collection, it was described a collection of stories through time and space, and I had a look at the list of everyone who'd written for it, and I hadn't really heard of most of them. But as I say, it's Terry Pratchett, Diana Wynne-Jones. The other name that jumped out as someone who I was aware of uh, was Roger Zelazny, who famously wrote the Amber series of fantasy books. Um, and for this, he wrote a novelette. So it's quite a long short story called Calafriki of the Thread. And he came back to this same character some years later. And that has been republished on its own, the two stories that he wrote about that character. So, anyway, I will put a link to that in the show notes as well. So, you can have a, a look at that if you're interested. We should get into this story. How would we describe the genre of this? Because I was quite interested in The Flying Sorcerers. They kind of split it up into fantasy, horror, uh, sci-fi. They have a couple of other things. And they decided to put this as the first story in the book because they really want to sell it as, you know, including Terry Pratchett. But that's the fantasy section, and I I kind of felt like it's more of a comic horror story. How do you feel about that?
1: Definitely comic horror. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's straight into it. It's it's um mm. it's death. The only fantasy element is the personification of death, uh, which is such a big trope for Pratchett, obviously. Mm. Um, but it can fit. Yeah, uh,
2: horror mm. perfect for it. It's like a gentle yeah. horror. Oh, yeah, it's gentle. Yeah.
1: No, although, although it did, uh, it was very touching. It made me weep uh, when I read mm. it. It's a beautiful story. And um, yeah, a, a dear friend of mine who is exactly Wayne, the main character in this book, passed away quite recently. And it just made me think of him so much. Yeah, yeah it's wonderful. Uh, I actually happen to know some of your Pratt Chat listeners know DJ Ian because they were fans of his on Twitch, who was a dear friend of ours who passed away unexpectedly. And this book is about him. So there's just so many, so it's so close in so many ways to that sort of person. Pratchett's writing is incredible. For somebody who may have known DJs but didn't, the way he captured so much of it is incredible, except for the opening metaphor, which I don't (laughs) think, uh, although a wonderful metaphor, doesn't work at all.
0: Right. Okay. Well, we'll have to come back to that.
2: Yeah, because I I read that, like, I had Mm. to read that about five times, but we'll come back to it, yeah.
0: Hmm. But yeah, I I agree. Uh I I knew him as well and uh, this story made me think of him 100%. Um yeah, uh although he's much much you know more outgoing and uh, personable than Wayne is depicted.
1: <laughs> yeah, although to to me Wayne sounds like just an absolute hoot to talk to. I would love to talk to Wayne. Um maybe he would bore some people, but I can also talk about records who produced them who played an organ solo on the third track on the B-side with relish and joy, you know, and who we know stepped in for one day because they're having a coffee next door and decided to play three seconds of guitar and now claims immense royalties from this particular song,
2: stuff like that. Love it. What's your best fun fact about a record, like if you just had to drop one? Oh, uh, let me think. God, so, you
1: know, this is like saying what band is the best. Um,
2: But we can come back to this in question time and I can put it to you then. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, have a think about it. That's good. Look, on that note,
0: let's get into the story and that first metaphor because this story, quite unusually for Pratchett, he's only done this a couple of times, is told in the first person. It's all dialogue from the perspective of a man who we find out quite near the end is named John. Uh, We never find out any surnames in this story. Uh, And John is being interviewed by the police following an incident, the nature of which we'll get to. He starts out saying to the constable who is interviewing him, I don't understand, why would he be into blues? Is this the metaphor that you're talking about?
1: Yeah, it is. And he's talking about death at that point, although the reader doesn't yet know. Mm. But then he goes on, that was Wayne's life for you, a blues single. If people were music, Wayne would be like one of those scratchy old numbers, re-recorded a hundred times from the original phonograph cylinder uh, with the same old guy with a name like Deaf Orange Robinson standing knee-deep in the Mississippi and moaning through his nose. I mean, that's a great metaphor for early blues. You know, it's just not a great metaphor for Wayne. But, <laughs> yeah. it's in fact, in fact, here's an amazing record fact, if you guys weren't aware. On the very earliest records, you had wax cylinders, obviously, Extremely fragile. And there's very few of them now because they can melt in a 25 degree room. But on the very earliest recordings, they had to record the artist directly onto the cylinder. And I mean directly. They couldn't make copies of recordings. So the number one, uh, for something along the lines of 1896, the person sold like 3,000 copies and they were number one for the entire year, biggest sales of the year. And they, Personally, recorded the same song three thousand times, and so every different release was a different recording. Wow. That's why it had to be done.
0: That's amazing.
1: That's wild, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I imagine that. Imagine if
1: Taylor Swift had to do that. Well, she'd be dead. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone yeah, she'd would still
0: be. be recording like her
2: first track. Exactly. Just again <laughs> and again and again. Well, I mean,
0: she started. She's on number two for a lot of songs, so you know, it, it could happen. <laughs>
2: That's true. Uh, Taylor's
0: wax cylinder version coming to a...
1: Oh, they've got to start releasing those again.
2: I would believe she'd do that as much, though. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Get it in pink. Get it in blue. Get it in purple. Done.
1: Done. Yeah, why just release on vinyl when you can release on wax? In fact, Mm -hmm. it was um, uh, Spinal Tap put out some advertising saying they were going to do that. Unfortunately, no. They're also going to release some sort of record that was made on a polymer that once you played it, the record was destroyed, so it could only ever be played once which is much like the um cellophane recordings you see get on the front covers of magazines oh yes where they print records onto plastic bag material you could really only play those once. but they're worth a
2: huge amount now oh yeah couldn't you like just sell a whole bunch of face because no one would want <gasps> to play them once they want if they're super Because you are so right
0: no one would ever know
2: i've got to start collecting
1: plastic bags and <laughs> carving circles onto them
2: yeah yeah. yeah. Perfect scam. All right, we're going to go offline for a couple of minutes while we rake in some money and then no. Do not worry. We're not, not going to do that. <laughs>
0: but, but I too look, to come back to the metaphor though, I I do agree with yes. you. Um I didn't think about it that much when I was reading it, but now that I think about it, I kind of agree. He's not a scratchy old number that's been re-recorded. He's a unique specimen. Like there's no one there's no one quite like him. He's interested in things that have been re-recorded a thousand times, but he's mm. he's an original. I feel.
1: Well, actually, Ben again, I'll have to disagree with you. There's one to five people like this in every big city. Okay. <laughs> I guess that does make them unique, but <laughs> pretty original. I've known I've known a few of these people and Ian was one of them. Mm. Uh Funique. Yeah. Funic perfect. Perfectly.
0: Unique. <laughs> That's genius. Okay. So what but what do you think Pratchett's trying to say with this metaphor? Where's he going with it?
1: I think he came up with a good idea and wanted to write it even though it didn't fit to be honest. And
2: yeah, I was going to say my um cynical view is he struggled to start his short story and then he had a moment of breakthrough where he's like great, I've got I'm going to start with this line about the blues and I've got this great image of like how to describe the blues and then the story took off from there, but the rest of the story didn't align with the opening, but the opening mm. stayed.
0: I mean, I guess I think his point for the blues metaphor is kind of like interesting and cool but not in a way that People currently appreciate, like he's, he's old fashioned. He's out of date. Um, you know, like these old blues records, which if you're into old blues records are great, but they're not going to be in the top 10, you know. And then he contrasts that by saying, Oh, you'd think he'd be more into heavy metal or meatloaf or someone talking about, you know, death's taste. And why would he come for Wayne? He, he, he would probably be into someone who was the equivalent of a heavy metal or meatloaf record, but instead he's come for this old dusty blues record. So I think I think that's where he's going with it, and I think that kind of works. But I I agree that if you start thinking about Wayne's personality and and the way that that fits into the metaphor, it is a bit weird. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I suppose partly also because. Record collectors know that those Dusty Old Blues records are the ones that are absolutely worth the most <laughs> to collectors. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so right. it works in there <laughs> as well. Although not anymore. A curious thing in the record collecting world is that those Old Blues and Jazz 78s on Shellac, which used to be worth so much, mm. are not worth as much as they used to be because the collectors are literate, have died off. Uh, Nobody wants them. Mm. So now the money is in what baby boomers love, 60s and 70s stuff. Right. And the old jazz and the old swing and the old blues, although they're wonderful objects, used to command, you know, up to $200,000. Now it's hard to get one grand.
0: Wow. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's interesting how fashions change there. And it never occurred to me to think about not just the fashions but the demographic of the collectors and how that would change over time. Because I'm i most familiar with people around my own age or a little bit older collecting. And so they're really, you know, there's a lot of interest in, uh, weird stuff from the '80s, and like you know that special edition of that Cure album that came on the weird colored vinyl and has the extra two tracks, you know that kind of stuff. Uh, and I've tracked down some of that stuff as as gift for friends, and and you and that's that's a that's a fun ride, you know. Like you can find some cool stuff, yeah. but it didn't occur to me to think who would the big market be. That makes sense.
1: Uh, but I should say, when Terry was writing this, that was the market. Mm. So it. W- <sighs> I think Liz is completely right. It works as an opener and it's fun and it's cute, but it actually doesn't work in the context of the story as a whole.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, that's fair. Well, the, I mean, this is his yeah. opening gambit, you know, it. I I love that we get a really good idea of John's personality just through the dialogue. Like he doesn't ever talk about himself very much, but we know who he is because of the way he speaks and that's, you know, it's just great yeah. writing. But he's the one who was kind of the brains behind the operation because he and Wayne have this mobile disco business. He talks about, this is my van. It's got Hellfire Disco painted on it. And Wayne-
1: An ominous choice. Yeah.
0: <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he- it's, I mean, Hellfire was really a thing for people in the 80s, wasn't it? I mean, it's, we've just seen in Stranger Things, the Dungeons and Dragons club in the, in the fourth season is called the Hellfire Club. So, I guess people like to sort of go, yeah, it's edgy to be like Satan adjacent.
1: Oh, heck yes. Like so many bands at the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, true. But yeah, they they started this business. John kind of came up with this idea because of who Wayne was and what Wayne's hobby was, which as we've alluded to is collecting records. Um, Although it wasn't- I mean, the way they talk about it, it's clearly not just a hobby for him. It's an entire way of life, isn't it?
1: Yes. Hmm. Yeah, it is. And it certainly can be- Um, Before I was a DJ, when I was just a kid, 15 years old working at Kmart, I earned $5.25 an hour and CDs cost 30 bucks, And so I would have to work for a little over six hours to earn an album. And that's exactly the terms in which I thought. And I would buy album after album and my mum would say to me, you're spending all of your money on something which you won't be interested in five years but uh jokes on her cuz I made a career out of it. Hey. <laughs> yeah. But that is it. It's a way of life like if you really care about it that much it's it everything goes towards it.
0: I was like that with Terry Pratchett books. You know, my first job out of high school was in a bookshop and I literally spent all the money I earned in the bookshop buying books from the bookshop, which was actually <laughs> quite an economical way to do it cuz I got a, a quite a hefty staff discount. <laughs> so
2: it worked out better. A heftier one than you're supposed to be getting. Isn't that, isn't that right? Uh, yes,
0: that's true. I, I have alluded to this on the podcast before. Um, in that apparently, although I suspect this was a rule retroactively invented and applied as a way to yeah. get me in trouble and stop giving me work because uh, the manager didn't like that I was asking for time off around HSC exam time, but they, uh, mm. they decided that, oh no, you're only supposed to get X number of books at that discount. And I'd just been buying all my books Ridiculous. on that discount. And, no, and the manager had never said anything. The other people in the shop had never said anything. And I had to write all of them down in a book to say I'm buying this at staff discount rate. So, they knew I was buying them all. Yeah. And no one else in my town was buying yeah, every budget, budget cover when it came out. So, I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know what their problem was.
1: Ben, I, I like to think that that's the worst crime you've ever committed.
0: Look, I would like to think that too. It probably isn't. <laughs> it definitely, definitely. Isn't.
1: Until our big cellophane. Until scheme. the cellophane. Yes, the, the cellophane scam scheme. Yeah.
0: Oh, you know, I, I was just mm. thinking about that. I've never had one of those cellophane ones, but I've had the sort of interim between that, where it was kind of like really thin plastic, and it was very, it was floppy. Oh, that's
1: probably what we're talking about, mate. Oh, really? was, was it cut in a, in a square shape, but with uh, a record carved some onto Some of it? them
0: were square, and some of them were round.
1: Yeah, you've had them, mate. Oh, yeah, there you go.
2: Look them up on discogs might be worth something
0: I don't think I've got any anymore I had to stop um, collecting
2: stamps as a kid because it was too stressful because they just won't stop making them even if you specialize <laughs> I was like okay I'm gonna sp- specialize in those square ones from England like they're specifically square and they have different pictures I was like okay I'll just like go on to that but they just like just keep hemorrhaging them out and it's just it's too much so I had to be like I don't collect stamps anymore no one saves stamps for me anymore it's, it's done.
1: Yes, totally, mate. Well, that's the thing. That mm. actually reminds me, there's a line in here. It, I'm cutting forward a bit, but this gives nothing away. Um, Wayne's speaking to Death uh, and he says, because we've already mentioned Death's in it, Wayne says, have you got the complete Beatles? <laughs> that's not a question a record collector's going to ask. Like, Yeah, I thought, I thought there's that. There's so was like, many of them. They did it. But yeah. It's impossible. It can't be done. Uh, you know, you could say you've got every Beatles album. You be like, "Yeah, I've got a pressing of every Beatles album," but you're not going to get the Argentinian, the Polish. You know, it's
0: impossible. I went through two layers with that joke because first I was like, "That's a dumb thing to ask." Of course, he's going to have every every everyone's going to have every Beatles, and I was like, "No, wait a minute. This is a record collector asking." They don't mean, yeah, do you have every album? They mean, have you got every version of every album?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And ridiculous, like an Australian cover that has a misprinted name and a photograph that was not approved in the UK. There's an amazing Beatles album cover where they're dressed as butchers covered in offal (laughs) and it's worth a lot because it was so uh, horrifying that they took it off the shelves after a day.
2: Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, I saw that in Get Back and I was like, how have I never seen this because it's the best thing?
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible.
2: I just had a quick question. Where are you getting his name John from? Because I I thought he was an unnamed protagonist.
0: Uh, well, in my copy of the story, he does one of yeah,
2: the Yeah, John's mentioned.
0: Says to him, John.
2: But John's mentioned, like, there's, there's like, multiple Johns in this. Like John Travolta, there's John Peel, but I didn't pick up, like, him being called John.
0: Uh, no, I think Wayne... Wayne says to him, please, John, at one point when he's asking him to go and look okay. at death. So, yeah, he does get named.
2: Well, there's a, a whole lot of Johns in here. <laughs> yeah, and- I, but I, I don't think Wayne was referring to John Travolta at that point. No. Please mm-hmm. John Travolta. A surprising number of Johns per word. You know, like the ratio of Johns to how, like, how short this story is. <laughs> like, it's, it's quite impressive.
0: That's true. That's true. Well, I mean, yes. So, John, uh, as, as we have established, his name is comes up with this idea for the, the mobile disco. It comes to him because his friend Wayne doesn't drive, but sometimes will ask him to drive him all over the countryside to go to particular stores or, you know, record fairs or swap meets or what have you in order to find things that are missing from his collection. Because as it's described, he will just collect everything. And in fact, quite early on in the story, he says, I'm pretty sure that Wayne really wants wanted. And and I look, I find one of the things that's very affecting to, for me in this story is how it's so recent. He's really struggling with the fact that his friend is now in the past tense. And I think all of us who have lost someone have been in that space, you know, Um yeah. quite recently for some of us, too. So it's. Yeah, it's difficult and it's just, oh, it gets you every time. But, yeah, he talks about how we're pretty sure he wanted to own one of every record that was ever made, which seems, I mean... Yeah. And he really doesn't seem to have had a niche. Is that common among record collectors or do most record collectors have a niche?
1: People who are truly passionate about music, I mean, they talk about there's a line here where John says about Wayne, he didn't worry whether the stuff was actually good or not. It just had to exist. A true, like, deep record collector like Ian and like me too, to us music isn't good or bad. All music is good, all of it, but you have to find what you like about it and you have to find what's inside it and you can say, I prefer this, I prefer that, but I think with respect we sort of acknowledge, like, that people so passionately say when you're DJing, this is crap, what is this? You're like, what are you talking about? The dance floor's going. People love it. Appreciation of music is so subjective, and it's amazing how people believe that their subjectivity is objectivity. Mm. You could perhaps argue that uh, it could be argued that the Beatles are better than a uh, Boyzone, but there's a million people who are teenage girls in the 90s who think that Boyzone are much better, and who's to say who's right? Uh yeah. Uh there's a line here as well, he would collect records that had been forgotten even by the people who made them. And there's that element too, because there are bands who I love and who Ian loves, and we'll go and see them live and maybe chat to them afterwards, you know, if you hang around enough stage doors or pubs with smaller bands, you get to chat to them. And you're like, hey, why don't you play Blah, anymore? And They're like, oh, oh, yeah, I vaguely remember that. And then you sing them a bit and they're like, Yeah. And it always amazes me because I'm like, you wrote that song. <laughs> How do you not remember? <laughs> but, of course, as as a comedian, I, I people come up to me and remind me of a joke that I did years ago that I have not thought of in that mm-hmm. time and would never remember. It's a beautiful thing, actually, fandom, and this bizarre element in which you are more interested in the artist's work than the artist is, which shows the reverence in which you hold them and the lack of conceit uh, the um, what do we call it? Proceed. Proceed. Proceed, in which they hold themselves, which is nice.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of little references to those sort of interactions here. Like, there's also that idea is like, you know, going to visit some guy who was formerly a pop star and is now a plumber and made one record that maybe sold eighty copies, uh, just yeah. to see if he's got a spare one and. <laughs> you know, th- I thought that was quite delightful. And it's so delightful. Ronnie
1: Sequin. Yeah, Ronnie the Sequin. Plumber. I love the name <laughs> Ronnie Sequin. I want someone to now go by that name. Oh, that's, in music. yeah,
0: that'd be, that'd be a gold name. Um, but it's, it, you know, it's, it's. It's so, I love writing like this that is so of its time as well. Like it's so mm. very much about what the experience of record collecting was like in 1989 around that time. Like before, I think if we, if we wanted to look at the history books, we'd probably find that compact discs may have been invented by 1989, but they certainly weren't popular. Most people didn't have a player. So it's still mostly vinyl or possibly cassette, which was not as popular a format at the time, really. No. Nice.
1: Cassette, small artwork, they broke pretty easily. Cassettes, sure you could fix them sh- chucking a pencil in the spokes and all that. But no, the true music collector collected records, not cassettes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Although there are, I mean, there's some rare cassette stuff. Like my, my one niche area of music that I got into a little, well, not one, but like the, the first one that I got into that was a bit weird outside of like novelty comedy music was, um, uh, like, uh, Canadian folk rock and, uh, quite a few of the those bands like started out like you know Moxie Fruvis and the Bare Naked Ladies. They they started out just making their own albums and releasing them on cassette. In fact, uh, I think oh, is it, I think it was Moxie Fruvis, Their first album was like called the Yellow Cassette or something like that. I might be mixing up whether it was them or the ladies. It's been a while since I've thought about this, but yeah, and like they just sold it while they were busking on the street in Toronto, you know. And that's like
1: yeah, absolutely real. Isn't reality. that chance? The Lucksmiths were the same. Yeah, although they later released those cassettes. Everybody did on CD, so.
0: Oh, yeah. I don't. Well, Fruvis are... didn't, actually. They re-recorded a lot of those songs for their first album instead. But, yeah, same deal, same sort of thing.
1: We're, we're getting amongst the weeds talking about early Moxie Fruvis on cassette, <laughs> but... Great band, Ben. Great band. They are a
0: great band. Not all of the members of that band.
2: And on theme with the character. Y-
0: yes, yes, I feel so. But I, I think the thing that I that I love about this though is the the picture it paints of of what the physical reality of that was. Like going all over the countryside, going to visit people to physically collect these things, um, and then also the detail of like every time he'd bring something back, there'd be a space in his like shelves with a brown envelope with a label on it for that thing. You know where he's yeah. filing them all away, uh, which I think
1: also cool. the idea that the house is reduced to two rooms <laughs> because every other room is just packed, <laughs> and that was Ian's house <laughs> quite literally every room given over to the records except for two that his you know wife very fairly insisted were record free, mm. as well as two immense storage units off site that were just filled with them.
0: Yeah, I know, I know someone, uh, and hello, if you're listening, who whose house is like that, but for board games.
1: Oh yeah. Oh gosh, it can be hard collecting board games. It is hard. so much space.
0: It is hard. I've, I've had to cut and back. And
1: yet you can't help but realize the ones that are going into the storage unit. When are you playing them?
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it's the same with records, right? If they're in the storage unit, you can't put them on the turntable.
1: Yeah, but you know, they're there. You don't forget.
0: <laughs> That's true.
1: <laughs> That's <laughs> you just true. don't. You just, you just know what you got. It's weird. I don't know how.
0: Yeah, well, you do. I mean, and also, you know, these days you can, you know, I, I mean, I- my first big collecting thing was Doctor Who books and I I started a spreadsheet or a database as soon as I had a computer that was capable of it to keep track of all of the ones that I had and the ones that I knew existed that I didn't have. And so, it's basically the same as what Wayne was doing <laughs> just with, with something much less cool.
1: Liz, do you still have the stamps?
2: Uh, yes, but they're in Adelaide at my parents' house, and I don't know exactly. Well, I know exactly where they are, but I don't look at it because otherwise I might start. Because <laughs> <laughs> every so often, like someone, like I'll see one of those square stamps. I'm like, that's very cool. That look, that's like, that's a really good one. Or they'll come up as a limited release one, and I'm like, oh, maybe just one. Um, but it's, <laughs> if you can't complete it, like, it doesn't feel worth doing. Mm. So I had to let it go completely. If that makes sense. It's Same with like coin collecting. There's small niches that you can do the whole bit of, but one, like, you can't even do like all Australian coins because like the mint does rare ones that cost tons of money that like it would be not reasonable to try and collect all of them. So you'd end up spending lots of money on money. And if you can't complete your set, then it's very. I just recently found out that they have this really cool $2 one with like $2 coin with amber in the middle, but you can't buy them anymore. They're only in circulation and I no longer work in my job where I had a lot of cash, which was a good way to get coins. I used to keep a a pocket full of coins that with my manager's approval, I could swap out for any ones I wanted to collect. And that was a a reasonable collection that I could do because it was achievable, but now it's like much more difficult. So it's a little bit torturous to hear about these things. Oh, mate,
1: I did the same thing at Kmart. I was surprised by how many of the round 50-cent pieces would come through. Mm. I'd always swap them out. Mm. Yeah. I don't know
0: why people
2: yeah, are spending absolutely. them. absolutely. No, I got a really interesting, I think, $2 coin or $1 coin one time and I went to my manager. This was in Adelaide, actually. I'm going to work at the cinema there and I was like, can I swap this out? And he's like, cool, yeah, whatever. And I looked it up online and it was worth like $20 and was not supposed to be in circulation. Um. <laughs> So, so, so someone, someone had, like, got... <laughs> yeah, got a collection and tore it apart.
0: Uh, yeah. It's killing me.
2: Yeah, like, one of those like, ones that are supposed to be, like, in a little set and then it's all in a display and they must, like, pop them out and then spin it. I was like... <laughs>
1: it's the equivalent of um, buying a large pack of small packs of chips and selling them individually, which, as every bag tells us, you are not allowed to do.
0: Mm. Yeah. I think uh, I, I do like your idea, Liz, though, of like picking like a small niche and trying to fill that. Like I, th- there's been a couple of times that's happened to me. The coin related one was um some years ago. I think it was for the 50th anniversary. They did coins for Mr. Squiggle. And there was like a oh. set of different ones with like Blackboard and Gus and Mr. Squiggle and stuff on them. I think I might be imagining. Oh, I hate this, hearing but, this. But I was like, <laughs> that's so cool. I would like. Those and I was like, even if I could just get a Bill steam shovel coin, that would be the best. Cause I love Bill steam shovel, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think I ever got any of those. Maybe one. I think I found one, but yeah, coins are hard. Who uses cash in Australia anymore? Very few people. Yeah. But I, there's this idea of, of like that feeling of like a gap in the collection that comes through for Wayne as well, where they talk about him you. needing that, those things and, and just going, Ugh. um, but because he's got this collection. John has the idea. is like, well, that's what you need to run a disco. You just, you need records and then you can play them. So he sells his car and buys a van, buys some sound gear and they put, how do they describe it? Um, they put a, they put a sign in the window. I did like the description of, um, of how when they got the van, he says, uh, so I flogged the Capri and bought the van and got it nearly professionally resprayed. <laughs> it's just a very fashiony <laughs> <pretty laughs> little gag in the, in the description. And he says, you can only see the words Midland electricity board on it if you know where to look. And this is Pratchett writing what he knows because he worked for the electricity board himself. Uh, and, and I love the description. He said, I wanted it to look like the van and the A team, except where theirs can jump four cars and still hair off down the road. Mine has trouble with drain covers. <laughs> 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 just such,
1: just. Yeah, I love that line. Oh,
0: very funny. I mean, it's, and it's fun to hear, you know, a character be speaking this dialogue and the whole story to be first person. But speaking with the wit of Terry Pratchett, you're like John is a card. Like I want to hang out with this guy. He's very funny,
2: <laughs> and it's very cohesively written. Like it's a well like other than not liking the the metaphor at the beginning. Overall, I think it's actually very well tightly written, very well constructed story because he does set up things early on that pay off throughout as well, and also even, like, the structure of the drinks in the section mm. later on, like, where he's, like, maybe one, no, it was two. Oh, and it had apples in it, it wasn't alcoholic. Actually, maybe it had this in it, like, and it was, even that was done well, but the car thread all the way through really pays off at the end, which yeah, just beautifully done. Yeah. I, uh, yeah.
0: I didn't see that coming, but when it happened again, I was just like, oh, yeah,
2: oh, that's good. Mm. That's good. I, yeah. It's also
1: just after that moment... It's mentioned there, we bought a load of amplifiers and stuff off of Ian Curtis over in Wirecliffe. And I've no idea if this is intentional, but Ian Curtis is, of course, the singer of Joy Division who Hmm. died very young. It's never referenced again. And the music that's referenced throughout this is all very high pop, uh, like Elvis and the Beatles and the Stones, high pop. And unfortunately, I don't think any women artists are mentioned at all, but um, product of its time. But what surrounds Ian Curtis famously is death. He wrote songs about death and he died so young. I just wonder if it was intentional or if Pratchett was just like, here's a generic and bland name, but Ian is the one who will send them the gear, which, of course, leads to disaster.
0: Yeah. Look, I suspect that was on purpose. Project was a bit of a musicophile, but I don't know. For the purposes of figuring out what kind of music he liked, he was very helpfully on Desert Island Discs once in 1997, and he picked some really interesting stuff, uh, including, you know, some classical music. Um, he's well known as a big Steel Ice Span fan, um, and, in fact, they did a concept album based on one of his books towards the end of his life, and they played at it. his, like, oh. 60th birthday, and it was, like, a whole thing. Wow. But yeah, he's quite eclectic taste. Uh, he did play, and Meatloaf does get mentioned in this story, and he did play a Meatloaf song when he was on Desert Island Discs. So yeah, I think <laughs> I think that's part wow, of wouldn't it. You? Uh, but he also Meatloaf's did... a legend. Oh, he is, yeah. But he also played "Great Southern Land" by Icehouse because it reminded him of his time in Australia, and he loved going to Australia so much.
1: Oh, I've supported Icehouse, one of the bands I played with.
0: Oh, there you go. Huh? Six <laughs> Degrees Harry Pratchett, right there. <laughs>
1: Oh, I'm so close to being mates with Terry.
0: (laughs) So, yeah, so it's a little hard to get a handle on what his overall musical taste was like and what his musical education was like. But I I suspect, knowing what he's like in terms of research and everything, I don't think, yeah, dropping Ian Curtis in there would have been an accident. I think he's used that name on purpose. Um,
1: Right. So then when the name Grebo Greaves comes up later, he's well aware of the extremely Small fledgling genre of Gribo, which is emerging in the north at the time.
0: <laughs> that I don't know. Um, I mean, Gribo is also the name of Nanny Og's cat, which is yeah, the true, more obvious true. reference. But t- is I that- always
1: wondered if it was a music reference.
0: Yeah, it could be both. You could both be right. That's true. What? Tell us about Gribo, Andy. What is that for real?
1: Yeah, yeah. Gribo is oh, it's a fun little genre. It's sort of hippie slash rave in the late 80s, early 90s. Bands like Neds Atomic, Dustbin, Cardi USM, Jesus Lizard or a Grebo Adjacent. Uh, yeah, like you know how you get raves which are all, hey, this is electronic, it's future, it's a rave. And then you get raves which are like, this is a dirty little rave filled with hippies and mud. Mm. It's the latter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, that sounds like more my sort of rave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, Look, you know, I used to hang out with goths. So if I was going to be a raver, I'd probably end up more of a graver, is what we used to call it.
2: I was about to say that as a like a pun, but then I was like, "No, that's no, really what no. we called it." Goth no, ravers, called we
0: call them gravers, and they were they were into the sort of more techno goth crossover kind of EDM that was also mm. a bit goth and weird. Yeah, no, that's great. Good fashion. Good fashion choices. Anyway, um we get, I mean, it's so, it's so easy to get a sidetrack. Music is such a, a wellspring of memory and nostalgia, which I know is something also that's yeah. a big theme of this story, right? But it, I think it's natural that we keep going back to all these side quests of thinking of things that the musical content and the, and the collector idea springs in us because that's, that's what that activity is like. You know, it's so connected to our emotions and our memories
1: absolutely
2: yep but to your point like that brings us back to the story they they start this business together of discos they put up a sign in the window and it doesn't go well people aren't exactly beating down their door to no. hire them but then that's um john's sister's wedding anniversary is that who it is Bar- 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 yes yes so they're hired presumably on a, like a uh, mate's right family. Like yeah, my brother started this business. Let's, let's do the thing. It's a surprise hit because Wayne um brings together all of the records from the year leading up to their wedding and builds a soundtrack out of that. And it sparks off a wave of nostalgia through everyone there who is around the same age and therefore has stories and feelings associated with that. And so they find their niche and their thing that they can offer to the community. Yeah,
1: perfect insight by Terry there. When I'm DJing weddings, I ask the couple how old they are, not out of a um, morbid curiosity, but because I want to know when they were at high school. And that is a great guide to the music they're going to be into, you know? Uh, Yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm actually amazed by what an excellent insight Terry has into how this works without being a DJ himself. And he also makes the point of we were getting dates from what you might call older types, not exactly kids, but bits haven't started falling off yet. And that is my market, (laughs) you know, like so many DJs focus and the kids. And I'm like, no, give me the late 20s to late 40s. Perfect. I'm the same age. I like the music. Uh, Much easier to DJ for.
0: Yeah,
2: absolutely. 100%.
0: I also like that they talk about the fact that, you know, those are also the audience that doesn't mind the fact that Wayne is not a high powered, like he's not like one of those shock jock like pirate radio DJs who like talks in all the lingo and, and like amps up the crowd. And says uh one of the things he says, hey, and wow, and get down and boogie and stuff. <laughs> I don't think anyone in nineteen eighty-nine was saying get down and boogie um if they were part of the cool set, but uh you know, but they didn't mind that he instead wanted to talk about the history of the next song that he was about to play. Beautiful. Uh and of course that all leads to the gig that is the catalyst for the incident that leads to John's interview with the police. It is quite appropriately for when we we're recording this, uh, a Halloween gig. And we'll come back to this uh, theme in the questions. At a church hall, I think for, um, as what, how does he describe it? It was a Halloween dance to raise money for a church hall. Wayne said that was a big joke, but he didn't say why. <laughs> uh, I, f- I don't feel like that's a mystery, right? That's uh, like we're going to do spooky devils and ghosts and things to raise money for a church. Uh, it just seems yeah. inherently slightly <laughs> weird, but great. This is what also leads into John sort of talking about the fact that they were childhood friends, you know, they knew each other in high school. Um, he was always the sort of skinny kid with the elastic, you know, elastoplasts holding his glasses together and that he always used to defend him from the bullies and people who would pick on him. And so, you get a bit of that backstory about their friendship as well.
2: Yeah, I also love the description of the, the hall itself. Like, it's just so perfectly, like, you can feel it. Like, it's, it smelled of tennis shoes and just to sort of set the seal on it, it as one of the hotspots of the world, there was a little mirror ball spinning up in the rafters. Half the little mirrors had fallen off. And, like, it's just perfect.
0: Yeah, it reminds me it of is. places that I used to go uh, when I was growing up in country Australia. You know, I lived in June Eve for a while, which is out near Wagga Wagga. And uh, I hung out with this youth group for a while, like a bunch of my friends were in. And we used to go to halls exactly like that (laughs) and play music (laughs) in them. It was great.
1: There's something so tragic about the mirror ball with the mirrors missing and you just see the foam bit on the inside. They're kind of heartbreaking. Do you guys know that Boy George uh, was nearly killed by a mirror ball, a giant mirror ball
2: once? No. No? Uh,
1: He uh, was sound checking on a stage Giant mirror ball, stadium tour, that kind of thing. And it was above him spinning around. And he walked off the stage, finished the sound check. Ten seconds later, the mirror ball landed exactly where he had been for the last two hours and smashed to pieces. And he would have been crushed to death. And as he said, if I had to go, that is the way I would have liked to have gone, <laughs> crushed to death by a giant <laughs> mirror ball. <laughs> Happily, he survived. Yeah.
0: Wow. <laughs> that's full on. Wow, Oof. that's cool. That's, I mean, yeah. frightening, but yeah, cool. Well, I think, I don't know if Terry Pratchett had a thing for mirror balls. There's a, a mirror ball shows up in one of the later Tiffany Aching books. I think it's there partly because he needed something that was made of glass and very breakable. And also because it was part of him sort of hinting to the, or showing the audience that, you know, Ankh Moorpork was moving forward and that more <laughs> weird sort of future things were happening there. So, you know, someone had invented the mirror ball for the- you know, hall dances that they were having, even though they definitely don't have disco music. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it appears in, in that book and it appears here too. So, that's it's an interesting connection.
2: They're a, w- a real shortcut to a mood, though. Like, I think you automatically get a feeling if a mirror ball enters the scene. So, and how many mirrors are still attached to it also, like, affects that mood. So, I think it's it's a good way to immediately like put you somewhere.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really true because we still, I mean, people still use the term disco even though, you know, to refer to like I'm going, I mean, not I'm older people, like they say I'm going to disco, like I'm going to go dancing. I mean, these days the modern term would be you'd say I'm going to a club or I'm going to this. What, what would you call like finishing school, for example, is not a, a club because it's not like a fixed place. Um This is, if you're not familiar, listener, um the wonderful Series of, well, this is what I'm asking, what the term is for it, but it's a series of nights with, and he's very famous for DJing, which is full of wonderful dance music, and everyone always has a really great time. It's a really good, good night out if you can ever get to one. But, um, what, how, how would you describe it? What would you call that kind of thing?
1: Oh, we call it a club night. To say it's a nightclub is erroneous because that implies we own the building, mm. which we'll never do. But <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's true that the Mirable sort of makes it, As well, there's something about a room without a mirror ball, room. A room with a mirror ball, disco. It is exactly what does Mm -hmm. it. It's perfect because when we started, it's at the trades hall and the room was just full of union flags everywhere and lefty stuff. It's fantastic. And the only concession to the fact that we were a nightclub every fortnight was uh, a little tiny, quite tiny mirror ball that we (laughs) shone a light at and there we go. We got the sparkles. Now it's a club night.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it just—it just, oh, you just need it. Uh, but this is 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 also, you know, a Halloween event, so everyone's in costume, which is quite important. Sort, sort of. of, yes. No, they do. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, and the description <laughs> of that is quite glorious.
1: Uh, everyone wore a mask, but hadn't made an effort with the rest of the clothes, so it looked as though Frankenstein and, and Co. had all gone shopping in Marks and Sparks. <laughs>
0: yeah. And I think we've all been to those sorts of costume parties. Like, I I don't know about you two. I mean, I I love the idea of costume parties, but if I get invited to one with a theme, I get very anxious because I'm like, I don't have time or money for a costume. What am I going to do? And those few times when I've had that flash of inspiration about what I'm going to wear and and put something together that works uh, have been great. But otherwise, I find it quite anxiety-inducing. How do you feel about costume events?
1: Uh, I I did it last night. I was going from a wedding to a Halloween party, so I was still wearing the suit that I wore for my wedding. So I simply had to go as evil wedding DJ. I find it's easier. (laughs) (laughs) It's easier to come up with an excuse for what you are wearing. Um, But you do have to dress up a bit, no no matter what. Like You can't just go in tracky-dacks and T-shirt and be like, Mm. "Uh, I'm evil Ben McKenzie. Like, you've got (laughs) to... (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah. <You're wearing> <laughs> You've got to be something got to get an eye patch at I'm leave. Comfy Van McKenzie <laughs> Comfy Van McKenzie
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah I saw who was uh, a mate of mine Another DJ actually was just posting on Instagram this week He had to go to a costume party and didn't have much And then when he was looking around in his boot for something He found his uh, Magic 8 Ball So, he wrote an eight on a piece of paper and attached it to his chest, and then he wrote all these little green triangles of paper with different responses on them, (laughs) and he went as a magic eight (laughs) ball and just had them in his pocket to hand out. I thought that was
1: genius. Oh, 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 that is genius. Yeah. Nice work. Liz, are you a costume fan?
2: I do love a costume party. When I went through 21st season, everyone seemed to do a, a themed 21st where you had to go in a costume and that was a great time. Cause I sort of feel like you either go hard on your costume or you don't try don't make a symbolic effort. Either you're not wearing one or you're wearing a full costume. Right. So um, it doesn't mean you have to spend lots of money or even like you can shop your own wardrobe for it and put something together. But either like for me, I'm either like, Oh, sorry, I didn't have time. So I'm not doing it or not coming to the party, or I'm gonna go all out. I don't know what my best one was. Um, there was a dumb one that we did one time, which was for 18th season. Actually, I'm making it sound like I'm in Bridgerton, like for the season. But, um, <laughs> you know how everyone like has their birthdays at the same time, yeah. and you spend like nine months, um, just doing the circuit of everyone's birthdays or or weddings or mm. whatnot, where you had to go with something that was the same as the first letter of your name. And another friend who also had an e-name and I just decided to go as each other, which was efficient because we were the same size and we just like chose an outfit for each other and swapped. Just great. <laughs>
0: That's great. <laughs>
2: uh, has anyone here ever dressed as a Terry Pratchett character?
0: Oh, yeah, well, yes. Yes, I have. Uh, I don't know if it was for a costume party, but I used to have a pretty good Rincewind outfit. I had a, had a red robe and a red wizard hat that I did get wizard onto in one way or another. Huh. Uh, not personally. Someone helped me with that one because it was originally for a theater production of Mort where I appeared as Rincewind to mm-hmm. do some narration at the start to set it up for any audience members who didn't know what world was. Uh, I don't know that there were many of them, but <laughs> you know, <laughs>
2: didn't want <laughs> them to feel left out. Liz? I have not, but I have plans for the future.
0: Oh, yes. We have talked Ooh. about this because we are hoping to go to the Australian Discworld Convention next year, so we will have to pull something out for the masquerade. Absolutely.
2: <gasps> I'm just going to have to get better at wearing stilettos because right now, whenever I try to wear any kind of heels, my main thing I do is talk about how painful they are the whole time, <laughs> um, which is not great company.
0: I'm going to have to think of what Discworld characters have a moustache. I don't think there are many, but I'll I'll figure that out.
1: You could just, well, you can cover it up with a thick layer of grease paint.
0: Oh, do a Cesar Romero (laughs) as the Joker, you mean? Yeah.
1: You'll be old, slippery face.
2: (laughs) Oh, gross. That sounds very uncomfortable. (laughs) it sounds gross. I don't want
1: to do that. Like the shoes. Liz, at least you talking at length about how the shoes are hurting you. That's honesty. And uh, that's what everybody Mm. wants in conversation.
2: Yeah, just brutal honesty about the same thing over and over again. (laughs) Unfortunately, I can't make it that night. It's a real shame. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's okay. I'll leave. I'll send you a voice memo, <laughs> a really long one.
0: Uh, but look, the the costumes at this Halloween do are not very good. But that's okay. People are milling around and they're setting up. Uh, one of our listeners did mention. I think it was Danny who actually suggested that we uh, cover this story. So thank you, Danny, because it's a great story, and I'm so glad we're doing it. But he said you can really hear the questions that are being asked of John, even though they're not in the text. And one of the ones that really stands out here is, you know, he says, oh, no, I didn't drink anything. Well, maybe one cup of the punch and that was all fruit juice. All right, two cups. And clearly he's being asked by the police officer because he's about to get into the more weird part of the story. And he revises that estimate of how much he had to drink. But he is he's sure. He says, I know what I heard and I'm absolutely certain about what I saw. I think, (laughs) he says.
1: It's just struck me. This is a monologue. This could be performed as a monologue. And
0: and indeed has been, again, by our listener, Danny, who did it at one of the Discworld conventions here in Australia. Oh, um, I think it would fantastic. be, yeah, a really great monologue. Really great. Mm. But we're getting up to the meaty part now. And I think this is where, you know, if you were doing it as a monologue. The not well, meaty part. You get with it. Yes. Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely true. devoid of meaty part. But uh, Wayne yeah. Wayne is not well. Uh, Which is an interesting detail that I don't know really comes back. But he was not his usual self. He was mixing up some of the records. He scratched one accidentally, which is something he would normally never do. But he sort of lets him get on with it. And he also lets him set up all of the gear because he wanted to do it, which he doesn't normally do, John, because he knows that Wayne's electrical safety skills are not really up to scratch. Uh, but they've set it up. They've got some music playing. uh, But he seems even more out of sorts. So, John goes up to see what's up, and Wayne starts talking about that bloke on the floor, the one in the flares, which is someone that John cannot see. And they have a bit of back and forth about it, and eventually, you know, he realises that Wayne is really honestly freaked out. And when Wayne says, you can't see him, John says, well, no, but since he mentioned it, I could see the space, and there's this beautiful description of how Um, Well, I'll read it out. There was this patch of floor around the middle of the hall, which everyone was keeping clear of, except that they weren't avoiding it. You see, they just didn't happen to be moving into it. It was just sort of accidentally there and it stayed there. It moved around a bit, but it never disappeared. And it's just this sort of weird description of there's something there that everybody is naturally avoiding as if they know it's there, but no one can see it. No one knows that it's there. And. So, prompted by Wayne, he goes to investigate. Although, just before we get to this sort of climactic moment, I do want to just say there's only one little bit of music or lyrics in the whole story. And we get a little bit of it as John is sort of going over to investigate this gap in the crowd. Um, and the lines that we get are, I want to live forever. People will see me and cry." Now I tried to find this song, and I did find a song that fits this. But did did either of you think you know what song that was?
2: Yeah, Yes. Yeah, is it? I want to live forever. That like t- t- I can't sing it, but you know, it's like the is it Gloria Gaynor? Like it's Irene Cara. Fame. I okay. want to live forever. Let's <laughs> see. Uh,
1: fame sorry i forgot that second line uh but people will see me and I remember remember remember, yeah. remember i hope you don't have to pay fees on that beautiful rendition of the song now people will think irene Cara was in the studio
0: <laughs> i
2: will uh, be okay that's, yeah. that's short enough um wait, wait did you sing that i thought you just <laughs> yeah, cracked out a record yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it
1: was very good um yeah i uh Liz, I'm glad you got it. Ben, I am surprised at you.
0: Well, here's the thing is that I recognised that it was a real song and I tried Googling it. And you know what? Fame did not come up in my search results. Instead, the song that came up in my search results was a song called Mount Rageous by Andrew Reynolds and Brianna Mazzola, which is from the soundtrack to the upcoming movie Trolls Band Together, which is the third Trolls film. And this is a weird coincidence because Terry Pratchett had a version of Truckers in development with uh, DreamWorks Animation for many, many years, and it never ended up getting made. And one of the things that put the nail in the coffin is that one of the producers suggested, why don't we rewrite it? so that it's the same story, but it's about these troll dolls that we want to make a film about. And he was like, no, get fucked. (laughs) He didn't want a part of that. Um, (laughs) But then they went ahead and they eventually made those films and now one of them has got a soundtrack where it's got these lines on it. And I don't know if that means they're sampling fame or what, but I just thought that was a really weird coincidence and I can't believe that that comes up higher in the search results. I'm going to have to fire my algorithm. That is not okay. I should have. Yeah. Cause like I want to live forever. I recognize that it was oh, the other they've one.
2: done They've gone hard on SEO.
0: Well, yes, that's true. We need to work on fame's SEO. Yeah, of course. I can't
2: believe it. So just coming back to what you were saying about the dance floor, how everyone's sort of avoiding this gap where this mysterious figure that only Wayne can see is, I feel like it's a beautifully done, not so much metaphor, but an image of life and death. Like there's like this swirl of people living, enjoying, reveling and, they all, at the back of their minds, know there's something there, a gap, and they're all avoiding it and not talking about it, and you can't see it. But it's something that is taking up space, and is it's beautifully done. I just think I, – I keep saying things are beautifully done this episode. But, yeah, I feel like it's a really good image. Like, microcosm's not the right word for it, but it shows how life and death are always together. It's not something that happens later on. It's a gap that you're always swirling around, a reality that you're always – conscious of in on some level, and putting it like this is a really nice way to do it.
0: Yeah. And it's also, it's such a Terry Pratchett death moment that he's at, at this party, but he's also, but no one can see he's there. So, he's kind of enjoying himself, and yet he's separate. Mm. He's apart mm. from everyone else, which is very much kind of how he was writing death around this time. It's the year after Mort, he's still writing death a little bit in that vein, where he's still a bit less human and is struggling to be more human or wanting to be more human. But uh, mm-hmm. John goes and stands in the gap, and he says, it was cold. It said, good evening, and it uh, does so in the death voice. Mm. Uh, and that is when death arrives in the story. And there's a great, I mean, there's so many great bits in this story, but in particularly in this bit, there's the description of the voice coming from everywhere around him. Everything slows down. He's in that sort of weird, stepped a little bit outside reality kind of space. And there's the great bit where he says, where are you? And death says, behind you. And uh John then narrates, now at a time like this, the impulse is to turn around, but you'd be amazed at how good I was at resisting it. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, oh, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. And then tells Jeff, hey, you've been frightening my friend. He's apologetic about it, but won't leave. Then when John sees him, there's this description of him being seven foot tall in his, yes, platform soles, and he's wearing flares. Uh And this is where there is an il- illustration for this story, and I think it is printed in the collection of illustrations in a blink of the screen, but it's also the cover of the Flying Sorcerers where um, it's a Josh Kirby illustration. Uh, you can see death there. It, his outfit is very Elvisy, uh, but in black uh, with red shoes and a white collar. He's got the blue glowing eyes. Uh, and he's holding in his hand the mask because John also is like, yeah, definitely he's wearing a skull mask. I can see the string on it. But later on, he does take that mask off, which is an echo of another Terry Pratchett death joke from one of the early Discworld books. And uh he's really interested in Wayne and he wants to be introduced to Wayne. So, John obliges, but he's very reluctant because he can feel something's off. And he consistently, he describes himself as knowing something's wrong, but not being able to put his finger on it. And he resists. He doesn't want to introduce death to his friend because he doesn't know who he is yet. And he's sort of weirdly, slightly outside of time. But he does it, he introduces them. There's a great moment, This is Wayne, I said, this is- uh, And then Death supplies a friend. <laughs> and then he says, who's? <laughs> and then, uh, just, just a nice little, just a really nice moment. Uh, and then Death says, after a bit of dialogue, uh, Death says, everyone's sooner or later. <laughs> <laughs> and then that's when he starts the discussion we, we alluded to earlier about collecting with Wayne. Where he says, I gather you're almost as keen as I am, Wayne the death voice uh which i thought was was delightful it's a great Uh, conversation about yeah yeah i mean there's a lot of great gags in this At the convention yeah were you at the the record fest and auction he's i don't recall i go to so many things that was the one where the auctioneer had a heart attack oh yes i seem to remember popping in just for a few minutes (laughs) very few bargains there i thought oh i don't know he was only 43. (laughs) (laughs) yeah oh (laughs) <laughs> dark but very funny humour there. That is oh, Death line. is
1: so funny. Yeah. So glib. I love this version of Death.
0: It is a great version of Death. He's a little bit- We'll get onto this because there's a question about it, but I feel like all of his versions of Death have a lot in common, but there are there's certain little strands. And I think any time he writes Death connected to the actual real world, as this story is meant to feel like it is, he's a little darker. Like his humour is a little more morbid because he's sort of dealing with Death connected to the real world rather than, you know, a fantasy world with dragons and stuff. And so I think he just realises this is a horrifying concept. Like, if you met death, that would be really freaky. I mean, it'd be also good and it would work out nicely in some ways, but it's it's not a normal circumstance and you'd be pretty frightened. So he writes death a slightly more sinister edge, even though he's still quite friendly, really. And, yeah, he has the conversation with Wayne, but John is still convinced something's not right about this.
1: John is very slow. He's- <laughs> working out. <laughs> that said, he's in the real world, so this doesn't happen in the real world. That's he right. He uh, his bony
2: wrist that is made of literal bones. He's like, I can't quite figure this out. I'm not sure what's going, going on. on
0: hmm. Yeah, a bit weird. But, you know, it all comes to a head when Death is talking to him and John's like, look, you leave my friend alone is basically his attitude. And he tries to punch him to sort of get him to leave and death easily stops him. And that's the point where he takes his mask off and he whispers a couple of words in John's ear. And then the sound system explodes and there's a fire and there's chaos and John gets out of the fire. He's slightly singed, but he's okay. Nobody else is seriously hurt, it seems. But Wayne is completely gone. He's vanished.
1: Yeah, that's- I found that odd. It does- Death usually take people bodily. No. I would assume he take- No. And yet he completely takes John and John John's body is missing. The police ask about it.
0: I Look, my take on that, because I thought that was odd too, but my take on that is that death is not so much collecting Wayne in the usual way as offering him an alternative because he's like, look, I need someone to look after my collection. You're the right person. Would you like to do that? And that means I'll take you with me. And it's kind of a bit like- you know, if you remember in, in Mort and the other death books, Alberto Malik, mm. you know, the powerful wizard, rather than actually die, does a deal with death where he goes and works with him. So, he physically leaves the real world and goes to live in death's domain, which means he's technically mm. not dead, but he has left the world of the living. And I think it's the same for Wayne.
2: Yeah, no, I that was also what I figured, that he took him physically so he could go catalogue for him or something like that. And that, to me, also aligns with the fact that Wayne is feeling unwell before death even shows up because like he's off his game he's scratching records so to me it implies that he was going to die Mm. that night
0: yeah that's
2: why death is there but death has an extra interest in him because he's a collector and a kindred soul and so instead of taking him the usual way he's like okay he was going to die anyway but instead of his and that's why the amps blow up instead to give a cover to the fact that he's taken him rather than it going down like usual
0: yeah Yeah, that's what I thought. Because I think if he had collected him, normally he would have gone on to an afterlife. You know, he wouldn't have stuck around with death. Yeah.
2: Because the way the story was unfolding, I thought he was going to, like, collapse at the DJ booth. That's And the police were coming over that. I didn't, like, obviously there was a foreshadowing about the wiring. But I was like, oh, well, he's going to, like, get electrocuted. But, like, also, like, there's something. Yeah. So, I didn't think it was going to be an explosion.
0: Yeah. No, I I was, like, surprised by that. I mean, even though it made perfect sense, like, it was well set up. But, uh yeah, I thought it was a great, weird ending. And I, it also lends a little more to the horror, weird fantasy aspect of the story, too. More to the horror. Because if Wayne had just died, but they, he'd seen this apparition, then people would just like, had yeah, too much to drink. But there's also the very real, tangible evidence that something supernatural happened because Wayne has completely disappeared. Yeah. So, I liked that about the story. Mm.
1: Well, I can't help but think, though, uh, you know, we think of death in his little house pottering around. mm if that's the case, if Wayne uh, is bodily there with Death cataloguing Death's collection, does that mean Wayne doesn't get to meet all the musicians he wants to meet in the afterlife? Because that is the ultimate record collector's dream.
0: Well, it's left a little ambiguous as to whether Death is talking about a literal record collection because the way he phrases it is he's, he's talking about collecting the musicians, right? Mm, um, yeah. Yeah. So, perhaps the thing is, well, what do you think it is that – what is the collection? Like, do you think it's records? Do you think it's actual – like, the souls of musicians? What is it that Death has that Wayne is cataloguing for him?
1: In some ways, it's almost as if he uh, wants to – in my mind, and I'm completely extrapolating – deputise Wayne to say, why don't you collect the musicians? You're going to know everything about them. You can even collect, as mentioned earlier, the cleaning lady who was – cleaned out the recording studio on this recording session mm. because, Wayne, you will know them better and treat them with love and respect that I don't have the time to work out. I'm deaf. I'm busy. I- I'll collect normies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, well, I wonder also, you know, when, when the musician dies, whether something of all their music also passes into the afterlife in this sort of imagined version of it. And maybe that's part of it too.
2: See, I was imagining him like cataloging kind of like a bit of both, like the musicians themselves due to the phrasing, but I wasn't picturing Death's Domain like in the disc world. I was picturing kind of like Death's Domain being the afterlife. So all the musicians are also there and all of their records and all of the questions you want answered. So like he would be taking him bodily there, which, again, like kind of throws a spanner into the why couldn't he just die and be there, but Maybe you can't work there if you've died and you're in the afterlife. It's so, yeah, I pictured him being able to interact with the musicians and the death domain was kind of the afterlife in this scenario.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. And there is beauty in this ambiguity.
0: Mm. Yeah. I think that's part of it too. Like that's what makes it horror is that we don't know. You know, it's not it's not clear because we're not experiencing it. We're just with John you know, we're still here and we don't know exactly what happened to Wayne or why he's been collected or why he's gone to work for death or what exactly the collection is that, you know, he's going to be looking after. And I think, you know, that that's part of that poignancy of the way death works in the real world is we have no certainty about what happens to people afterwards or where they are or, what, you know, if they still exist at all. And that not knowing, I think, is part of the sadness, but it's also part of the hope and wonder, you know, and. And the way, the fact that we, we can believe that they live on in any number of different ways. Yeah. So, I, I like that about the story. Yeah.
1: Mm. Uh, the final part of the story is the two words. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And it's, oh, uh, a corker, I didn't, like I said, I didn't see that coming. Again, it was set up really well. But he's dropped all these little mentions throughout that he doesn't think he's going to drive anymore. And he's like, why? Like You're the only one who drives, like you've got a van. And then he reveals, yeah, the, the two words that Death said to him were drive safely. Uh, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so the cops are worried that uh, he's going to drive home drunk, John, that is, and John ain't never going to drive
0: again. No, he's not even going to get a lift with the cops. He's like, I'm going to walk, thanks. Yeah.
2: It is kind of fascinating, though, like, they each bring one thing to the business, like, John brings driving and Wayne brings DJing and music, and that's what is fatal for each of them. <laughs> <laughs> True.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: And also again a real insight I have been amazed
1: by how few DJs with record collections have to lug about drive. Yeah. I do and that may be the edge I have to push me into superstardom.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. But do I mean well do you you still you do use vinyls when you DJ as well, still don't you?
1: Oh very rarely actually. Mm. Uh Vinyl is fragile. You know, we talk about scratching in this. Uh, once you scratch a record, it's just never as good and sometimes completely ruined. So, um, years ago, I used to only DJ vinyl. Then, uh, I had a few drinks once, decided not to drive home. And, uh, you know, my records were in a hot car and they were all of my DJing records at the time were destroyed. I've replaced them all since, but no, I've gone to, uh, digital, which is just as in streaming. I don't even use CDs anymore.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: Yeah. More yeah. hard drive. But yeah.
0: I feel, well, I feel like we've, we've gotten to the end of the story and we're about to transition into our questions. And that is a very good segue into uh, the first of our questions. But just before we get to it, are there any favorite bits, like any gags or quotes that anyone wants to revisit that we didn't read out? Cause it, again, you know, like Pratchett always surprises you. You can write a short story and it's so full of gags. It's just. Yeah ridiculous um and there are lots and lots of very funny lines in this are there any
1: oh yeah uh, just for me it, um death and wayne are having a conversation and wayne's asking him about records and death responds oh i've got them all elvis presley buddy holly jim morrison Jimi hendrix john lennon and of course at, in 89 they're all the big ones who died within the last 10 years or so yeah. so yeah beautiful reference
0: yeah yeah
2: I think we've said all my favourites throughout. Like, I like the Have You Got All The Beatles? Not yet. Um,
1: <laughs> and it's, still it's not. so dark.
0: <laughs> yeah, still not. Still two left. Uh, well, more than two, depending on how many Beatles you count, I suppose.
1: Yeah. And uh, whether you count that Paul actually died in 1967, <laughs> that great conspiracy theory.
0: <laughs> yeah. We parodied in the ruttles when um, there was all those people wearing those badges that said Stig is dead.
2: Uh,
0: <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I think we've covered all my favourite bits. It's very good. One of the things I really like is how the horror in the story is that death is inevitable and is not going to be dissuaded. And he's quite firm on that because John repeatedly says to him, you know, you've been frightening my friend. And he's like, push off. And he says, that doesn't work, I'm afraid. And I think that that was one of my favourite lines from death is just like, yeah, look, you can't ask me not to be here. That's not how it works.
2: He's also got a macabre sort of, thing about him because he's making himself visible before he takes him. But I guess that's because he's interested in doing a different kind of deal with Wayne. But has John like pissed him off so severely? Cause like John's not going to be immortal. If he can't just like not drive forever and just live forever, he's going to die at some point. So like telling him those two words has really like fucked him for life. Yeah. Like he's not going to be able to drive, but he's not also going to outrun death. So it's quite cruel.
1: Yeah, we just know that sometime in the future there's going to be an occasion where John has to drive, and that's when death will get him.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's,
0: yeah, that sort of prophecy stuff. But he has
2: the psychological torture beforehand.
0: I've just watched. Uh, i just been re-watching David Tennant's run of Doctor Who in the lead up to the 60th anniversary, and I just got to the end of time, and there's that whole thing, and I won't spoil it too clearly in case you haven't seen it, listener, but there's a whole thing where he has been given a prophecy about how he's going to die. And, you know, you can, it's coming the whole episode, you know, it's coming and then it happens. And I feel like, yeah, it's going to be the same for John. Uh, but we should get into our listener questions and yeah, we yes. should start with the one that was a lovely segue from what you were just talking about in your transition from using vinyls to going fully digital and streaming in your DJing, Andy. Um, so Liz, do you want to kick us off with the
2: questions? Yeah. So the first one comes from Molokov via Discord. What would you do to update this story for the 21st century in terms of technology? And who would Mr Friend list as the pride of his collection?
0: Ooh. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we, we've we talked about how you've updated for the 21st century, Andy, but do you, I mean, are you worried about the wiring <laughs> having read this story? <laughs> um,
1: Actually, there's another great point in the story where they say something like, you'd be amazed by how many different connectors there are. And yes. that is true, but we can thank the EU government for um, making Apple have less unique connectors it's not as hard as it used to be you don't have to do the wire you used to have to make your own gear to dj and do the Mm. wiring yourself and really know about electronics now it's just all bought so perhaps wayne would have died differently now maybe he spilled uh some of the punch on his decks and got electrocuted that way or um somebody requested to aggressively fell on top of you and crushed you to death another possibility (laughs) <laughs> um, so, yeah, these days, yeah. there are still DJs. Obviously, who use vinyl. are still DJs who use CDs. But, geez, the setup is nothing like it used to be. You used to have to have a van full of records. Now you can get away with a backpack, which is delightful. Mm. I'm very interested in who would Mr. Friend list as the pride of his collection because there's so many more to choose from now.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, You've got, I don't know. You've got I Prince.
0: I mean, um, it's, I mean, is there anyone more famous than John Lennon, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison? Like, I mean, I guess. Uh, within certain
1: genres. Yeah. Like some people are like, Avicii, poor Avicii, you know, but, um.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's true. And I mean, I guess.
1: Amy Winehouse.
0: Oh,
2: yeah. But. Yeah.
0: Dolores from
2: the Cranberries.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Shenandoah O'Connor. But if Elvis this, is the king of rock and roll, maybe it's hard to beat Elvis.
2: Yeah. 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 I, if I mean, Why is he not mentioned? Or is he mentioned?
1: Elvis is in the story, yeah.
0: Yeah, he's in the list. Yeah. Okay, good. Like All right. the ones it, that Death's already got, yeah.
1: This is a purely subjective question.
0: It is, mm. yeah. I feel like you would have maybe- Not a bad one. You'd have a couple of more recent references, but you would still have to have John Lennon and Jimi Hendrix and Elvis Presley in the list. Mm. Like I think at least those three. Mm. Because- And I think also, because if you're writing now, like for the- Depending on the audience, like you're talking about knowing your audience as a DJ, I think as an author, you've got to know your audience a bit too. It's like, well, who are the audience going to know? Everyone's going to know those names. If you start to name mm. pretty obscure people, nobody's going to know, but you, you might tailor it to who your main core audience is. I don't know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And he's working in 1989, so-
0: yeah, well, yeah.
1: A lot of the old rockers actually lived a really, really long time. So, at this point, you know, Chuck Berry's still alive, Fats Domino's still alive. Uh, mm. Yeah, so many of the great classic rockers.
0: I reckon if it was, you know, I'm sort of extrapolating into the future and I'm, I'm sort of thinking that-
1: oh, Taylor Swift.
0: Yeah, Taylor Swift, Beyonce, those yeah. are some big names. Like, they would be top of the list, but you'd have to be writing the story in, like, 100 years' time. They're going to live forever. <laughs> Rick Astley. Rick Astley, oh my God. Yeah, he's not going to. Yeah,
1: but he's never going to give us up.
0: No, (laughs) (laughs) definitely not. (laughs) Uh, You know, just before we move on to the next question, Andy, I did Uh. want to ask about the update. Do you use any special technology when you're using streaming music to DJ? Like, do you do any beat matching and stuff? Does that need a special device?
1: It doesn't need one. You can do it with vinyl and that's where it all started, but the technology makes it so much easier. Every little controller's got a sync button on it now if you want to sync beats. You still need to pick songs of a similar BPM or else they will sound ridiculous, sped up or slowed down to a certain point. But everything's easy now mm. with the buttons and knobs that we now have. Yeah, In 1989, it's a completely different world when it comes to DJing. Yeah. Even when I started on CDs, it was a completely different world. That was still just two CD players and a mixer in the middle with very few effects. Now I can get incredible effects out of just using a touchscreen. On an iPad, if I want.
0: Wow! Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's move on to some of the other listener questions because there's some great ones.
2: Our next question comes from Boris via Twitter. What do you make of the characterization of death in different Terry Pratchett worlds? So Discworld, Good Omens, this story. Is it essentially the same character? I think it's curious because he is not consistent even within Discworld novels. So this is something we did touch on during the main podcast, but I think there's room to discuss a little bit more.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because like like I said, I I think there's something essential that's the same about him, but particularly when he shows up in books that are connected to our real world. So, Good Omens is the other main one, but then the early death in the disc world also feels like that.
2: Hmm. And I also think his domain might be different based on the story itself. So, I think he could be a different guy in a different world, like a death for a round world and thus a different sort of vibe.
1: But yet Mort was the last book I read Mort quite recently. Uh, last book that I read by Terry Pratchett reread and, um, seems very similar to this death indeed.
0: Mm, yeah. I agree. He's, yeah. A, he's a, yeah, he's a bit, he's a little bit darker. And when he's trying to be personable and he's trying to be more of a human, he, he's always a little bit off at that stage. Yeah. Whereas later quite on, he's a bit so. more successfully human. <laughs> Yeah, even <laughs> even in like his second book in Reaper Man, he's still a little bit cold, but he really warms up through the book. Contrasted with the other death, so you get a really good idea of you know how far he's come, even in just that one book's time. Mm. Yeah.
2: All right. Our next question comes from Steve Lee via Twitter. I think this is my favorite Terry short story. Brilliantly economical text that builds a world. The Thirty-five years ish since it was first published has only improved it. As many of the then living people mentioned have since been quote collected. So to the question. Do you think he'd be into meatloaf?
0: (laughs) (laughs) He being death, obviously. Well, I I mean, I think because Terry Pratchett was into meatloaf, I think the answer would be yes, because he's created death. And surely no one has done more. uh, Well, no, that's not true. But surely few people have done more to sort of (laughs) publicise and put people uh, at ease with the idea of the Grim Reaper than people like. Meatloaf and many heavy metal musicians. Very so true. So shortly, Death would be on board.
1: I mean, I can't. When I was a kid, I saw the covers of uh, Meatloaf albums. I was scared of them. You know, so I was scared of anything. But Meatloaf is not heavy metal. Meatloaf is like pure, no. dramatic, fun, operatic, overly theatrical. And when you listen to the music, it's nothing like those scary covers. Um, yeah. But yeah, Death is definitely into Meatloaf. No shadow of a doubt.
0: Yeah, I feel the same. Like I remember seeing the cover of Meatloaf and then hearing Meatloaf and going, "What?" <laughs> like <laughs> just was, like, hang on, I was expecting like Iron Maiden or something, or uh, but no.
1: Yeah, same with band names. You hear Primal Scream and you think, "Ooh, they're going to be an aggressive metal band," and they're just ding a ding a dong, ding a
2: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Our next question comes from Molokov via Discord. What was the first record or cassette tape or CD you ever bought?
0: Ooh. Ooh. I think I do remember mine. I certainly remember what the first couple were because I bought a couple of cassettes. I never bought anything on vinyl until I was sort of collecting secondhand some weird stuff, Uh, like, you know, the original Hitchhiker's Guide vinyls. And I've got a Captain Kremen vinyl you know, from um, Kenny Everett's video show. Like he did an album version of that stupid sketch. I've got one of those and some of the goodies ones. Anyway, I collected those later. But the first cassettes I remember buying were, uh, one was the single, oh, it was by Voice of the Beehive. Do you remember Voice of the Beehive? They were like a a bit of a one-hit wonder uh, Australian group who did a cover of, it was like a unrequited love song and it was a a big hit at the time. And I I bought that single and I bought one of the singles- off the Australian cast album of Jesus Christ Superstar, and those were the first two cassettes that I remember buying. Uh, 17
1: Seconds by The Cure uh, on vinyl by Channel 7 Records. Definitely the influence of my brother coming in there (laughs) and the fact that I could play the bass line on my cello to a forest. So, uh, yeah.
2: I think the first one I ever bought with my own money is that Savage Garden one? I can't, remember. it had the t- shots of both of them and it's black and white on the front. And I got that because, as Annie mentioned earlier, CDs were $30, which is a lot of money. Mm. And I bought a lot of CD singles in that time because they were $4.95. Yeah. So you could get like the song that you wanted and some bonus weird songs sometimes, which was often better than the actual one itself. But I had saved up not quite $30, but I really wanted that one. So I was searching the secondhand section of my really good. CD store that was local at the time. It was called Krypton Discs. It was the best. And that one just happened to be there for, I think, $14. I bought it and it was amazing. It was just like a good serendipitous find, which brings us neatly into the next question, which comes from Sally Star by Discord. What is the best thing you have found in a secondhand bookshop slash record shop slash other secondhand shop? And I'm going to say not that CD. It was actually a pair of gold heels that were already broken in by someone who had the exact same feet as me and they did not hurt.
1: Perfect. Not stilettos though, surely.
2: They were really pointy, like that. It was like magic oh, shoes. Wow. It was like a fairy tale, yeah. And when they broke, eventually it broke my heart. I couldn't get them fixed. They're like, no, they're done. And I'm like, Ugh. so yeah, it was like magic shoes.
1: For me, it's two records. It's the Australian pressing of the soundtrack to the Monkeys movie head, which <laughs> is during the Monkeys very experimental <laughs> phase, where it certainly is. They, um, Jack Nicholson directed the movie, the actor, and the monkeys were always accused of not being real musicians because other people wrote some of their songs, but they really could play. And it was the late sixties and they were like, we're going to prove we can play. Not only that, we can prove we're not just bubblegum pop. We're going to release a really weird album and it is really freaking weird and hard to listen to.
0: <laughs> it is. I have listened to it and it is very weird. Yeah. I agree. That's great. Well, what was the other one, Andy?
1: Oh, the other one was the 12 inch single of Blue Monday by New Order, which famously is the biggest selling 12 inch single of all time. And it almost bankrupted New Order and their record company Factory because it cost more to produce than they were selling it for, and it's beautiful.
0: Mm. That's pretty good. Look, the best album that I found in a, a secondhand record store, apart from, like, I found a couple of goodies albums and uh, the aforementioned Hitchhiker's records, but I found as a present for a dear friend of mine um, the, like, set of three discs soundtrack actually to both the original and the um, sort of later sequel of Twin Peaks. Oh. Um, and, uh, yeah, really good find. And beautiful, like, picture discs, like, it because it was- uh, Three discs, and it was like I can't remember how many of the discs were this actual soundtrack, and then there was like the music, the um, songs that are played on it, as well as the actual score. So it was really, that was a great find. But in general, in a secondhand shop, the best thing I've ever found is this jacket, which, listener, you can't see, but it's actually on the back of my chair, which is this green corduroy jacket that I got from a secondhand clothing store on my one and only trip ever to New York. And I think the place was called mm. Cheap Jacks, <laughs> and it's this beautiful corduroy jacket, and the lining <laughs> is uh, all of these little sailboats or ships. I think it's a tall ship and life preservers. That was, that was easily the, oh, the best secondhand
1: nautical, thing. but nice. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, really good. Yeah, oh, and I've just remembered the name of that song by Boys of the Beehive. It was uh, I think I love you. It was a cover of I think I love
2: you.
1: I think I love you, what am I so afraid of? That's the one. The Partridge Family one? Yeah,
2: that's the one.
0: What a track. Great cover as well.
2: All right. um, We're going to take a brief diversion into questions specifically for Andy now. So these two have come in. I'll read you them together so you can answer them one by one. Uh So the first one comes from Patrick via Discord, What Time Is Love? And the second one comes in from Sally Star via Discord, how soon
1: is now? Now is 6.16pm. 6, but how soon is now mm. is, of course, a classic metaphor. Uh, the answer is never, unfortunately, for Morrissey, uh, particularly now, I should say, uh, that he has become so awful, a tragedy for me. <laughs> yes. I kind of, oh, man, I, oh, like I hate to say it, but I kind of wish death had grabbed him in, like, 2010 <laughs> uh, 10 instead. But at, What Time Is Love Ooh, ooh uh, is a KLF track. Uh, there is no answer to what time is love. Hopefully the time is now as well. This is, while the appropriate, we've been talking about DJ Ian. KLF were one of his favourite bands and much like a Pratchett lover would we'll go to conventions and follow them around. Ian would, whenever KLF did something which was rare, if you don't know KLF listeners, my goodness, listen to them. You will love how quirky they are, how funny they are. There's some great documentaries on them. Um, they did crazy stuff like Fire Machine Gun full of blanks at the Brit Awards to announce that they were leaving music. They made a million <laughs> pounds off of their records because they were number one stars and they burnt it all as a statement. And ever since then, there's been so much debate over whether that was a vile waste of money or a magnificent piece of art. Um, but Ian, loved them. One thing they have is the Pyramid of Death, And people who are KLF fans are allowed to send 30 grams of their ashes to this pyramid, which will be built by the bodies of dead KLF fans. And Ian's big wish was to send 30 grams, so he will become part of the pyramid of death. And how appropriate is that to this story and to... It's a beautiful thing and a tragic thing. That is beautiful. Anyway, listen to KLF. You don't have to give them 30 grams of your physical body, but listen to them.
0: No. and I, In fact, the first single I ever bought on CD was a reissue of uh, the KLF as the Time Lords doing Doctor and the TARDIS, which, you know, when of it came course. out in 1989, uh, 1988, uh, was, 88. Uh, was sung at me relentlessly because I was known as the Doctor Who nerd in the school. Um, but it was such a great song and I loved it anyway. And they wrote a book about how to, you know, a very cynical book about how to make a number one hit single, which was largely about that song, which was, you know, a remix of other hit songs with a popular cultural reference in it. Amazing. Amazing. I love their later work too.
1: The amazing book, The Manual, had a solid guarantee that if you followed every step in the book and didn't have a number one, they'd refund you. And- it's so wonderfully cynical, the book, Like, yeah. but you can't do it now because a lot of it is based on steal samples from things because in those days you didn't get sued necessarily if you stole samples, mm-hmm. but now you can't do it. You get sued to oblivion, so you can't grab just, you know, a chorus from a big Beyonce song and throw it in.
0: Yeah, and you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to get it on uh, YouTube and TikTok. You'd get taken down almost immediately, which is what you need to do yeah. to have a number one single these days if you're not already known, I think,
2: yeah. <laughs> All right. Our next question comes from Patrick via Discord. What's the thing you're so passionate and knowledgeable about that you'd accept a job curating desk collection of it?
1: Britpop singles.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely, Andy. I would have said that for
0: you. <laughs> absolutely.
1: But for me, it's this job. I want this job. Unfortunately, Wayne's already got it.
0: Ah, oh, dang it. Well, I mean, you know, Wayne could do with some. He'd have some company, surely.
1: Mm. Yeah, I'll need an assistant by now. Because now thousands of tracks are being released every day. Now they're mm. so digital. So, phew, it's a lot of work.
0: Mm. Yeah. Mm. Look, I don't know. Maybe uh, the thing is everything I can think of. I tend, I'm tend, i like one of those sort of breadth rather than depth nerds. Like I know a reasonable amount about a lot of different things rather than everything about one thing. So, I don't know that I'd be good for this. I don't know if I've got one. Because, uh, you know, there's people out there who know way more about Terry Pratchett books than me. Maybe Terry Pratchett Podcasts. I don't think there's anyone in the world who knows more about <laughs> Terry Pratchett Podcasts, not just this one, but all the other ones, than I do. So, maybe that would be my job. You have gone niche. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be my niche.
2: I don't know. If, I'd have to study up a little bit because I used to be more like a deep dive person into things um, in the past, but I reckon I could brush up enough. Um, so, if you asked me this when I was 17, my answer probably would have been spontaneous human combustion. I could probably... Curate his um his collection of people who died by a spontaneous human combustion, amazing, <laughs> or mysterious unexplained phenomena like people who died doing weird stuff like that. That one where um someone had a fight with someone else and he tried to shoot him and the bullet went into a tree and because he missed and then years later that same man was cutting down that tree and it accidentally hit the bullet and it killed him like later so. <laughs> Just,
0: just. <laughs> I remember hearing this story. In a, like, I think I read it in a book when I was a kid. I think,
2: yeah. I Reader's think Digest true. Mysteries of the Unexplained yeah. was that the book? Because yeah, probably. That's yeah, where yeah. I read. It. Oh yeah, or the Dorling Kindersley collection of that sort of unexplained. I used yeah. to had these
0: audiobooks that were that, and that was. Uh, I'm sure mm. that was in one of them.
2: So I could happily spend an eternity just getting into all of, all of that <laughs> stuff. I reckon, like, and with the subcategory <laughs> of spontaneous human combustion. Um. Before our last question, I'd like to come back to something I flagged earlier. What's your most fun piece of musical or record trivia or information? Like, what's your most fun fact about either a song or an album or or a musician?
1: (sighs) I'd completely forgotten about this question. Uh, Okay. um...
2: Why you think,
0: Andy? I'm going to just jump in there and say I don't have a music one, but my equivalent is that David Tennant's first ever job connected to Doctor Who happened because he was working in the same sound studio where they were recording Scream of the Shalker, which was the 40th anniversary online animated Doctor Who thing that starred Richard E. Grant as a new Doctor that then almost immediately became irrelevant because they cast Christopher Eccleston and announced they were making actual Doctor Who for TV again. Uh, But he heard that they were recording it And he was such a big nerd fan that he kind of went along and basically knocked on the door and said, please, 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 please can I be in this? And they gave him a bit part. And so he appears as like a soldier in it, in one scene, I think. That's my, that's my equivalent. (laughs)
2: Uh, for me, um, I think it's my – I might have said this on the podcast before, so I'm sorry if you've heard it before, but I once interviewed Steve Kilby from the church and he was talking about his song Under the Milky Way, which, if you don't know, has a kick-ass bagpipe solo in the middle of it for some reason. And he told me that it was apparently there as a holder um, thing until they came up with something better. But then they decided they liked it and so they kept it. And it is actually like – it's not someone playing the bagpipes. It's someone playing the bagpipes on a keyboard and then they play it backwards. Oh right. That's why it sounds wow. a bit strange.
1: Yeah, I never thought it was bagpipes. So now I know, yeah, because it, it doesn't quite have the same sound as you're the voices bagpipe solo, no. but it's a great little solo. It's ethereal. It's not played like bagpipes either because it's just long notes. Yeah, it's nice.
2: It's being sucked in rather than exhaled. Yeah. Yeah, right.
1: Yes, of course, backwards. Um. Oh, mate, I don't know. One of my first thoughts went to the Verve's Unfinished Symphony. Oh, I, of course, meant Bittersweet Symphony by the Verb. Unfinished Sympathy. Well, there's Sympathy for the Devil. Unfinished Symphony. Wait, tons of composers have unfinished symphony. Anyway, Bittersweet Symphony. Their biggest hit, you know, you probably – don't know other verve songs uh, but they never make a cent off that because they use a tiny sample from the rolling stones in it and the rolling stones are very cruelly litigious and they the stones make all the money off of that even though there's just a tiny sample which isn't even that obvious great hook in the song which they steal from it yeah, yeah. But then there's so many, like, if you're going back to Brill Buildings. But the problem with Amazing Music Facts is they're always like, um, Frank Harcourt played bass on uh, this Partridge Family album. And then he was in the studio next door, uh, when, uh, the Kingsmen were recording this hit. And it's just stuff like that.
0: Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, that's what made me think yeah. of the, the David Tennant thing is like, yeah, he just happened to be in the studio next door and they were recording this thing. So he said, can I be in it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think they're mainly of interest to music nerds, these beautiful facts. Give me a moment Googling and I'll come up with, um, you know, somebody mistakenly poisoned a cup of tea uh, (laughs) that led directly to the death of Prince. Um,
2: Yeah. All right. So our final question comes from Sven by Discord. Since it is spooky season, what music would you play at the local town hall Halloween party?
1: (laughs) They're so obvious. I mean, the the big stuff, Monster Mash, Mm. you know maybe a bit of meatloaf, but also you've obviously got the whole goth field, which, you know, atmospherically fit beautifully. What are you guys
2: thinking? I'd be a terrible DJ, which is why, like, I don't do it and also I should never do it. But I reckon I'd go with the themed one of songs that sound jolly but whose lyrics are really, really actually quite dark.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Great.
2: Classic. Yeah, So
1: many of those. Yeah. Um, Bill and Sebastian essentially made a career out of that. (laughs)
2: Mm. A lot of
0: um, late Stephen Page era of Ben ladies is like that, actually, as well.
1: Yeah. And, of course, famously, Hey Ya! by OutKast, the lyrics are really tragic.
2: Yeah. Pumped up but kicks. But everybody, Oof. and it
1: even says in the lyrics, you don't want to hear me, you just want to dance. And it's true. Like, everyone's just like, woohoo hey ya! <laughs> uh, but it's about, you know, people falling out of love and hating each other.
2: Can I just do one more fun music fact, and it's really short. It's My Party has a sequel song, and it's called It's Judy's Turn to Cry. Yeah. Oh, wow.
0: Judy's
1: turn to cry. Judy's to, yeah, she's getting revenge on Judy who stole her man away.
2: A terrible man who sounds like he sucks. So, um, yeah, her name, the
1: artist's name (laughs) is Lizzie Gore. Oh,
2: (laughs) Oh, you play her. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would put
0: in like a lot of the obvious ones. Yeah. Yeah. Monster mash, that kind of stuff, but also I'm a big, big fan of the soundtrack to the Rankin Bass animated film Mad Monster Party by Maury Laws. And it has some cranking tunes on it, there's some really good stuff on that album, and I would absolutely play most of it (laughs) at a Halloween do. If you don't know it, look it up. Uh, It's pretty amazing. I don't know if it's on any of the streaming services, unfortunately.
1: Because monsters are bad enough, but when they're mad, that's when they get dangerous. And
0: if you've not heard this album, you've got to listen to it. It's so good. I have not. I'll I'll send you the details. You've got it. I think you'll really dig it. Anyway, that's what I would play. Uh, which really kind of brings us to the end of the episode. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure.
1: Friends, it's been a delight. You've inspired me to continue my Terry Pratchett journey, to go back to it after two decades and get hooked in once again.
0: I'm so glad. I'm so nice. glad about that. If people want to find out more about your DJ career or come and see you uh, DJ or do some comedy, where can they find out more about that?
1: Yes, Mr. McClellan's Finishing School is my club. Nice, and we have our 15th birthday coming up soon. Sweet Jesus 15 years, and that's on the 10th of November. Over it at the-
2: was just your 10th. Uh,
1: yeah, <laughs> it does feel that way. COVID put a big hole in things. Nonetheless, the years must be counted. Sorry, I cut you off the date. Uh, 10th of November at, over at the Trades Hall, uh, the corner of Lowland Street and Victoria Parade in Melbourne. Otherwise, you know, there's my DJ Andrew McClelland on Instagram and Facebook, Twitter even, but I'm terrible at that. Um, I'm not on Mastodon or Blue Sky, and I hope I never have to be.
0: Well, don't go on there on our account, but we'll link to all of your accounts that you actually do use in our episode notes so you listener can go and find out more about Andy. Thank you, Andy. And thank you, listener, for listening. Of course, there's no point in us doing this if you're not out there listening to us, much in the same way. There's no point in DJing if there's no one on the dance floor. (laughs) Um, But we continue to DJ and you continue to dance. So, thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you, too, to our subscribers who made this possible. And to Danny, who suggested this story when we put a call out for what short stories we haven't done that you think are worth a full episode. I think this one was a very good call. Are there any others? If you've got a short story by Pratchett that you'd like us to cover in a whole episode, please let us know, because uh, we probably, as we've said before, won't do every single one individually. That's too much that we'd be here for another six years. Uh, but we would like to do a few more of the ones that are a bit more meaty, a bit more interesting. So, if you've got one, let us know. Uh, and speaking of short stories, we're going to be doing some more of them, Liz. But um, we've talked a bit about possibly doing this, and now we're going to do it. We're not just going to do one. We're going to do a whole book full of them that seem appropriate to the season, aren't we?
2: Yeah. So, now that we've done spooky season, uh, we're going to follow up with Father Christmas fake beard. Father Christmas's – sorry, the the double S gets me. (laughs) (laughs) It is – it's
0: quite hard to say quite quickly. Yes. So, this is one of Pratchett's collections of early short stories for children published in newspapers originally – Um this is the third one, Father Christmas's Fake Beard, which is all Christmas themed stories. And he did love writing Christmas stories. I guess if you're writing Yeah if you're writing kids' stories every month, then you have to write a Christmas story at least one every year, don't you? So I guess he would have written heaps. Um because there are several in the new book, A Stroke of the Pen, as well, that are Christmas themed. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of them out there. But we're not doing those ones. We're doing the ones in Father Christmas's Fake Beard. Now, we'll put a list of all of those stories on our website so you can see what the individual ones are. But you can send us questions about any of those stories or the collection as a whole, um, and we'll be discussing those next month. That's Pratchat73 if you're going to send questions using the hashtag, <laughs> or you can email us, as usual, at chat at pratchatpodcast.com. And, uh, yeah, that's it. So, listener, until next time, remember, drive safely. You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchett's Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Andrew McClelland. Pratchat is produced and edited by me on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Our music is by David Ashton. You can find us on, frankly, too many social media platforms. Yes, including Mastodon. And you can listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via PratchatPodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat72. Pratt Chat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series
1: Night Terrace. To find out more, visit splendidchaps.com.